Well, thank you, um, Rob, uh, and indeed, Ibrar, uh, for inviting me here. Um, and I hope I'm not playing under entirely false colours, um, uh, having already changed the title slightly. Um, <coughs> uh, and I suppose, uh, when you haven't got a word, I just sort of make one up. So, so the word I've made up is citizen, citizening. And what I'm trying to get across by that is the notion of an active process. So, the Polish philologist Victor Klemperer said that the Nazis commandeered language before they commandeered everything else. I think that's a very important thing to keep in our heads. And of course, propaganda comes from all quarters. It seems to me that social media reflects the shift in both the global north and the global south from left to right, from liberal to conservative. And such, such shifts augur fear, division, conflict, injustice and violence. Not that I would offer a sweeping statement of any description. So, what I'm hoping to kind of cover today um, <clears throat> is a few different topics. How do we develop criticality and why would we want to develop criticality about social media? A bit about the ideological purposes of universities, social media in universities, reconfiguring student-teacher relations uh, towards engagement, empowerment, citizenry, and citizening and global justice. So maybe a couple more uh, delightfully sweeping generalizations uh, about language. Language of course is not transparent but carries ideological freight in every age and in every culture. Power can be obtained by investing in and controlling language. Words then can become a battleground. The meaning that wins then founds the hegemony. And so we don't think about the meaning of the things because they have been internalized, they have become hegemonic. So, social media I think it's safe to say, is fairly pervasive. Nine out of ten American teenagers hold at least one social media device or account. What if social media then becomes dominated by a new establishment trying to create a new hegemony? So we tend to think of social media as unofficial language, as the place where you can go to say what you really think, like a kind of theatrical aside. But, you know, people in power, people, politicians, all sorts of people uh, realize uh, that, that this is something that can be bought, can be commodified, can be used to control. So, I thought we'd play a wee word game or two. So, let's take, you know, a few words. I could, I could do this all day and we're a great crack. 
um, that, are, that are, you know, kind of fairly high, have a fairly high lexical recursive um, uh, quality to them. And, and one that we hear all the time is the word liberal. Now, what I notice uh, as a, an ancient person uh, is that the neoliberal right view uh, is that liberal is really a bad word, it's bad. Liberal is, is then collocated with elite and denotes the privileged. It's weak on immigration, all those liberals. They're weak on moral values. And indeed, they have been denounced as libtards, thus conflating uh, stereotypes and negative language about people living with disabilities uh, and a particular political or cultural positioning. So you get two for the price of one there. The liberal left view the word liberal, surprise, surprise, as rather more positive. And that really develops out of an older hegemony, post-war, post-modern, democratic, emphasizing individual choice and openness. Of course, individual choice is fine if you have the money to make it. Nonetheless, in a post-modern existentialist universe, everybody must choose. Radicals then, left and right, view the word liberal as, uh, as negative or insufficiently transformative. What about nationalism? That one is, you know, got up the old agenda quite a bit in the last few years. So, <clears throat> the neoliberal right view nationalism as a good thing, patriotic, America first, uh, Britain's sovereignty, the liberal left tend to view it as somewhat threatening and draw on history and uh, the way in which certainly the word nationalism as a concept really only uh, comes about uh, uh, from, uh, it reaches its zenith in the, in the 19th century. The radical left uh, view nationalism alternatively as good and bad. Here's another one we're hearing quite a bit now, globalization. So, the neoliberal right then tend to view it as a good thing, as long as they're dominating the global market. The liberal left tend to view it as somewhat positive, because it seems to uh, bring with it a certain amount of social and economic mobility, but they're also critical of the power of neo-imperialist corporations and have environmental concerns, obviously, uh, to do with globalization. The radical left would tend to view globalization as negative, concentrating power with corporations and increasing global inequality and injustice and causing environmental degradation. So the Academy of Legado, uh, of course, everybody in the room will have read Gulliver's Travels, won't they? We, we can assume that, not. 
<coughs> so, Gulliver's Travels, uh, book three, The Writing Machine. Uh, kind of an early frame computer. But what Swift was doing with his writing machine was to suggest that this academy of Legado was like the worst kind of university, uh, where uh, it just uh, created these devices, so to speak, uh, that uh, were all to do with a kind of abstract uh, activity, uh, academic, purely um, cerebral, uh, unconnected with uh, the world, unconnected with society. And, of course, offering no useful benefit or good. Uh, there was a nice alliteration with Lagos. So, a wee bit now about the ideological purposes of universities uh, in the global north and south. So, it seems to me that universities in the global north still proclaim a three-stranded mission to educate for personal development, that sort of civilizing mission, uh, to reward and develop intelligence and originality. And that sort of echoed by uh, uh, what Mark put up uh, uh, very interestingly in his slides. To create public or societal benefit to, and to prepare students for the labour market. And the current keyword or mantra is, is of course the knowledge economy and the notion of knowledge as an international tradable commodity. What's missing here? The transformation of society, the tackling of inequality and global injustice, the notion of concepts of global citizenry. The mission of universities in both the, in the global south seems to be much more explicitly about transformation of society towards justice and equality. And of course, some academics are calling for new paradigms, variously defined, but which may be in, generalized as the engaged university. The challenge is how to structurally and practically connect these three strands, personal development and public de 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 uh, benefit, with the focus on marketable skills. Scholars, especially those working with oppressed and marginalized learners, thus, and those involved in community and international development, are calling for a much broader understanding of knowledge through which we might learn to develop our humanity, to recognize global inequality, and to enact a principled response to it in which personal development is not just an individual privatized acquisition of knowledge. Uh, what Mark was talking about, private gain, uh, public gain. So, <clears throat> to counter the absorption of universities into such a dehumanizing enterprise. Uh, sorry, I'm going the wrong way here. Sorry. So, what 
however, is the reality. We have, we have these fine sentiments trotted out uh, at uh, graduations every year. But what's the reality? The continuing dominance, educationally, of this transmissive instrumental model, which is about stuffing people with uh, what are considered to be core knowledges, which they then vomit uh, obligingly uh, at exams and uh, go up and uh, receive their degree from the Vice-Chancellor. Uh, so there's, a, there's still that notion in an awful lot of activities that actually happen in universities about knowledge as passive rather than active and about students as supine. And that touches on something again that, that Mark hinted at uh, uh, with great subtlety earlier. But of course transmissive pedagogy serves the purposes of the university as a neoliberal business. What about social media in universities? If universities in the global south are increasingly and possibly uncritically embracing the ideology of the global economy, then <clears throat> one way they can enact this is through this whole idea of being digital universities. And this includes, of course, onlining of teaching, preserving academic time for what's really important, research, which is the thing that generates the books, uh, accessing high-value postgraduate global markets. But where does social media fit in? In some ways, and again I'm generalising for the sake of provoking a, a damn good argument, um, there's a sort of rejection of social media, a kind of snobism, uh, that it's not really a proper data source for research. But then, on the other hand, it, there's an acceptance from the official line of the university, uh, because it's seen as an important medium for marketing. Purveying views of lecturers, perhaps through their Facebook or Twitter or blogs, uh, and possibly dialogical communication with students through things like the flip classroom. But what is missing is social media for useful purposes, for public good, and certainly for global citizenry. <coughs> so, then we need to ask ourselves, what is our own ideological positioning? So, against this transmissive model, those of us particularly in faculties like, or schools like education, uh, you know, the, the thing that most people are, are pushing for is a constructivist, um, active learning kind of model or set of learning theories. So, what we're saying is that educators should be more reflective and inclusive embodying classroom practices which respect equality and diversity uh, and student knowledge. We should be talking about active learning rather than surface learning or transmissive learning, fostering both creative and critical skills, and that it should be collaborative and dialogical. And the teachers need to question their own power base and indeed cultural positioning.
Now, I would contend that critical thinking is often sharpened and indeed made more enjoyable. What happened to enjoyable? What happened that? Learn, I actually enjoyed that class. Uh, so my view would be that, that criticality uh, can actually be sharpened and improved through creative uh, methodologies and creative attitudes. So I suppose another thing that we hear a lot about is critical pedagogy or transformative pedagogy. Really concerned with what Mark talked about, criticality, and, and how you actually make manifest or uh, make uh, reveal or expose uh, in the way that Swift revealed and exposed as a satirist, uh, uh, you know, the, what, what, this hegemon, what these hegemonies are. So you lay them bare as hegemonies. And of course, the inequalities which lie beneath the rhetoric uh, and cultural norms of what we are persuaded to believe. So constructivism and critical transformative pedagogy are linked clearly to an ideological vision of the purpose of the university as creating public, social good, societal benefit. Which can at least aspire towards the uh, idea of global justice. So the, the teaching methodology, the, the pedagogy, is related to the purpose of the university in terms of what we're talking about, about uh, global citizenry. So, how do we actually enact this critical pedagogy? We can blather and talk about it all day, but what do we actually do as educators? And I suppose this echoes a wee bit of a conversation we had uh, over lunch there with uh, Callum, uh, that in fact students in every age switch off from lectures. I mean, is there anybody in this room who, who you know, um, is really going to say to me that they never ever uh, switched off in a lecture and doodled or uh, wrote a note to, to their mate or, or made a funny uh, satirical picture of the lecturer? Or am I the only one did that? <laughs> so what happens is um, that if, particularly if the learning is not engaged and is primarily transmissive, uh, you're in a sense creating a natural space for students to switch off and retire and retreat into their real world. And in this era, that real world is very often platformed through social media. So I suppose I think we need to be uh, much more uh, keen and devoted to trying to figure out what that learner zone looks like F and free ourselves of the tyranny of always having to cover curricula uh, which is really teaching to test. Step back, encourage questioning, encourage dissension, promote that kind of more active, engaged learning. Does be prepared to disrupt the traditional power relations. Because traditional power relations are what have led also, of course, to global inequality. 
and maybe even take an hour or two of, uh, from your uh, high status research to engage with students about what they are actually following on Twitter and Snapchat and all the rest of it. And what can we learn then from the real lives of our students? What do they think? How different or similar is that to our own thinking? So maybe just as a draw to a close, uh, enacting creative pedagogies, learning through social media. So suppose what I'm saying is, instead of insisting that students switch off their devices when they come into the room, um, you get them to take them in. Develop social media learning with classrooms and between classrooms, globally, for example, using apps like Edmodo. And I suppose I just like, knocked up a few examples here, and I'm sure you guys have far, far uh, better examples. Uh, I'm very new to this whole world, so maybe the examples I'm given are quite naive, uh, and you can come up with far, far better stuff. So, here's a few examples. Literature students could use WhatsApp, Storify, Google Earth, or Facebook to discuss novels such as Raman's in the light of what we know with students in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, where the novel is set. Literature students uh, could use Twitter and blogging to create haikus with student partners in China or Japan or become insta-poets, like Rupi uh, Kaur. Or we could have topic-based approaches, for example, on climate change using Pinterest uh, project boards, Twitter, Flickr, and Facebook, to gather data globally through kind of active learning with other students in different parts of the world. Music students could post songs about their own lives as women, in the global north and south. Anthropology students could construct um, and upload films uh, about some aspect of their national culture, cooking food, festivals and so on. Geography students could create a Skype virtual field trip. Students could be developed, uh, encouraged to develop learning games based on gaming theory and the kind of stuff that they do with their Xboxes and all the rest of it. And why not invite guest speakers uh, uh, to exchange learning uh, uh, using Skype? So, students as co-researchers with teachers on global projects comparing North and South, and that's students as co-researchers, uh, not just critical and creative, but actually engaging as researchers. There might be uh, an article that could be co-created uh, collaboratively on literary representations of dementia, social media action research, on enacting global citizen between academics and students north and south on themes like older people, disability, mental health, income equalities and the migrant experience. So, in conclusion, I think we're just beginning. And I suppose as T.S. Eliot said, um, every new beginning is a new kind of failure. Um, 
students, this is from a, a, a woman called Amy Hustler, students were nervous about blogging their, that blogging their assignments might get them into trouble because they were so fun. Social media allows students to flex their creative juices and interact with their peers in a way that just can't be replicated in the classroom. By engaging students in this way, learning outcomes improve. So far from uh, active learning being dichotomous uh, with uh, 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 good learning outcomes, uh, there's quite a lot of research to suggest the opposite is the case. And particularly with, um, with, particularly with learners who are coming from non-traditional and non-privileged backgrounds. Okay, so uh, that, that's all I have to say formally and I'm very um, uh, uh, grateful to you for your patience. Uh, I should say that, that uh, I have just really in the last year and much less than that started the experiment myself with even using technology like PowerPoint and you might find that absolutely absurd. Uh, but I suppose what I'm trying to say is that we should never... Um, I, I'm, I'm, it's a bit like gender change and I'm transitioning, but I'm not sure if I want to go the whole way. Uh, so, so as well as not obviously being particularly skillful at using this kit, um, I, I also wonder about you know, things like PowerPoint and whether they actually you know, flatten and discourage discussion. But it may also be because I'm not skilled enough to know how to use it properly yet. So I think well, we, we shouldn't be slaves to a technology either. Um, but we also, uh, you know, the bad workman blames his tools. So I'm blaming myself, uh, and I'm not blaming technology. But, you know, how do we use it? Not, how do we use it in such a way that we're not just kind of doing something that we've done uh, before and the, the notion of just reproducing the same things. You know, how can we use it to create more criticality, I suppose, and creativity? So, I, I'm very happy to take questions or vehement disagreements.